Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello. Welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast, a podcast dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. I'm James Rogers. And in this episode, we're looking at cluster bombs, those weapons that unleash hell from above. When I first started researching the history of war, it's one of the topics that fascinated me. Why is it that certain weapons are deemed acceptable, fair for use in war, but others are deemed as abhorrent, illegal, immoral, detestable? Well, when it comes down to this latter category, cluster bombs are the epitome of disgusting and detestable weapons. They're indiscriminate, they're disproportionate, and they linger on the battlefield long after the war is over, for months, years, even decades, killing and maiming civilians. They can be fragmentation bomblets that explode and splinter out, or they can be firebombs that set fire and ablaze to whole cities. So, to explain why these bombs were invented in the first place, who on earth invented them, and how they became a real icon of the major terror bombings of the 20th century. We're joined by my old friend, John Ismay, from the New York Times. Now, John spent over a decade in the US military in bomb disposal, and he's now writing the first major history of these dreaded weapons. Unsurprisingly, sadly, these are still being used around the world today. Hi, John. Thank you so much for coming on The World Wars. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Not a problem at all. I think the last time I saw you in person before this great pandemic, we met in a bar in DC. And (laughs) I think you know where I'm going with this. Correct (laughs) me if I'm wrong. You walked in with a bomb. I did. Yeah, it was an inert bomb. There were no explosives inside. It was a decommissioned anti-personnel submunition. Not many people can say they walk around DC with even an inert bomb, but you know, you work for the New York Times, so this is all okay, right? It is. I mean, I only do it for uh, special people like you, you know, but I did put it in a backpack until I got inside. I didn't really need anyone else taking a look at that while I was walking down the street. No, but but then you did pull it out and put it on the table for all to see. But luckily, not many people will know much about a German submunition. Well, it was an American version of a German submunition, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily scream dangerous article when you see it. And I guess that's part of the problem with these whole things, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. But also, we're in safe hands because you worked in explosive ordnance disposal, right? 
That's right. I got commissioned in the U.S. Navy the summer or spring of 1999. I was assigned to a destroyer for a couple of years, and then after the 9-11 attacks, I uh, transferred over to the EOD field and then started about a year and a half of training and got to my first operational unit in, I think, the summer of 2004. And I did that work until I left the Navy at the end of 2010. Since then, you've worked for Amnesty and now the New York Times. So you're not only a practitioner when it comes to the technical aspects of bombs, but you're also someone who's worked to raise awareness about these weapons. That's right. I saw, unfortunately, firsthand the effects of submunition use in northern Iraq in 2007. As a surge lit off, there were incidents with cluster bombs that had been dropped earlier, say in 2003 during the invasion, that killed farmers, killed innocent civilians, and some of our teams had to go deal with them. And at one point, actually, when a civilian was killed, incidentally, I had to go do an investigation about the incident. It was in a town called Bartala in the Yazidi area, I believe outside Talafer. And I can tell you this, that was the most scared I've ever been in my life, was getting out of this truck and walking into a wheat field where I knew that the most dangerous submunition that had ever been created was certainly lying underground or just under the surface. So I thought, well, this is what you went to all those fancy schools for and got all that training for and make the extra money to do. So it's time to go do it. I did my job. But that was easily the most concerned I've ever been for my own safety. And the fascinating thing here, of course, is that you're experiencing this in the 2000s. But the history of this weapon, of these submunitions, of these anti-personnel cluster bombs goes back far further. And now you're working on a, a history of the cluster bomb. So where does this all begin? Where can we trace the invention of this despicable weapon in history, this indiscriminate and disproportionate weapon back to? Well, it goes back as far as I can tell to about 1917. And I'll tell you that one particular bomblet, that submunition that I was dealing with in Iraq, I started this whole work trying to figure out where that came from. And I did so because this thing, one of the reasons that makes it particularly dangerous is that there's no render safe procedure for it, or at least there was none at the time. I understand one has since been developed, but it's so dangerous that it can't be moved or touched in any way or else it'll explode. And I thought, well, who made this? Why would somebody make something like this? And that question of where did this particular bomblet came from just kept pushing me further and further back in time. And that eventually brought me to World War I when a German company developed small incendiary bomblets. They're about one kilogram in weight. They're basically long, skinny cylinders. And they were produced in large numbers, but the generals could not get permission to use them. German generals wanted to drop them in mass on Paris in 1918, but the Kaiser according to my research, refused to give them that permission. So these things largely stayed in inventory after the first war. And then in the 1930s, there was uh, new uses found for them or new uses imagined for them. And that included the idea of encapsulating them in aerodynamically stable containers that look like bombs that would then break open in midair much closer to the bottom. And so you could have taken these things, and they did do this. They did put them into boxes, open-ended boxes, and just shove them out the side door of cargo planes or bombers. But in that case, as soon as the box hits the airstream, it's going to disperse all the bomblets, and they will begin their fall 
as individuals from whatever altitude the plane is at. And that leads to a much wider dispersal of the submunitions or bomblets. But then somebody, I still don't know who, but somebody got the idea that we could package these things in dispensers that we release from a plane that then fall for a certain amount of time. And then a fuse will basically pop the container apart and allow the submunitions to then fall in a much tighter pattern. That's ultimately how it happened. It started with incendiary munitions designed to create flames, because if you think about it, if you have a lot of little bombets that are gonna start fires, if you disperse them widely over an area, any one of them is more likely to be able to be put out by firefighters on the ground. However, if you create a ton of fires in a smaller area, that's a much harder problem to deal with on the ground from the other end of that attack. So pretty quickly, actually, a number of years later, German designers came up with an anti-personnel bomblet, which is the one you're familiar with, the SD-2 butterfly bomb. And that was put into great use by the Germans in the Second World War on the western and eastern fronts of the war. So let's take this back, because the first type of these cluster munitions were incendiary weapons designed to set whole cities alight. But it's the Kaiser who states that actually, despite the fact that you've got mustard gas and chemical weapons being used during the First World War, that incendiary weapons on Paris is a line too far. So when is it that we get this first approval of cluster munitions to be used in conflict? So what I see is in 1929, there were some trials in a town called Lipetsk. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. With these electron brand bombs, the B1E, the one kilogram German incendiaries that were equipped with an experimental fitting that allowed them to be released in salvos of 10 or 20 at a time. The containers were sort of hard to handle, hard to load. So by 1932, they created something called the BSK-36, and that allowed the exact same incendiaries to be packaged in there. And I should note that another thing that I think might be underappreciated in the development is that I know in the United States by 1914, the U.S. Army had developed leaflet bombs, which are aerodynamically stable containers that break open in midair and disperse spools or sheets of paper for influence, propaganda, information operations, whatever you want to call it. And in fact, the very first American versions of cluster bombs relied on basically the same casings from leaflet bombs that they then put their own bomblets into. So I think that was a surprise to me to see. And I think ultimately war produces results based on what people have in front of them, seeing, well, I've got this thing and I've got this thing, maybe I can put them together and create a new gizmo that I can use in war. And I think that combination of the development of leaflet bombs plus these incendiary clusters merged and created a new line of weapons. It's amazing to think what seemingly non-lethal technologies can finally be put to use for, especially when it ends up being the delivery device for something just so lethal and so disproportionate and indiscriminate. But when it comes through this interwar period then, and we enter into the Second World War, the Second World War, of course, as we know, is a very different bag when it comes to air power. Air power has matured by this point. Has the cluster bomb matured with air power as we get into 1939, 1940? Absolutely. And the Germans matured that during the Spanish Civil War. That was the first wide-scale use of these cluster incendiaries starting in November of 36 in a bombing attack on Madrid, uh, which incidentally 
I believe, hit a British customs office at one point in in Madrid. And interestingly, too, I think another underappreciated aspect of this is the cat and mouse game between adversaries. And the reason I want to mention this before getting more fully into the Second World War is that I found a great paper that said in November of 36, the crew of the Royal Navy submarine HMS Cyclops recovered two of the incendiary bombs used by the Luftwaffe and sent them by submarine back to England for analysis and exploitation. And so that then influenced British development of their own you know, incendiaries. That sort of loop has happened continuously ever since. You've got the British making their designs based in part on German designs. You've got Russians making theirs based on Germans. Later, the Soviet Union based a lot of their designs on American designs. So this feedback of capturing unexploded munitions, returning them back to your home base for exploitation, reverse engineering. I think to understand what happened in the Second World War, you have to understand that this loop was already put into place before the war, starting during the Spanish Civil War in the late 1930s. So that during the Second World War, the Luftwaffe already had the SD-2 butterfly bomb and put it into mass production. And so you also see in late 1939, when the Winter War between the Soviet Union and Finland starts, that the Russians start using their own indigenously designed cluster munitions. They burned a town called Sordavala. There was a massive attack in February 1940 that I can't pronounce the Finnish, but it translates to Arson Saturday. And there was a, a Soviet design, the RRAB3, that got nicknamed the Molotov Breadbasket, and that could be filled with a combination of incendiaries or anti-personnel submunitions. And a lot of those anti-personnel versions were really just lightly modified artillery projectiles or mortar rounds that had slightly different fuses installed. So in the beginning of the Second World War, you see people actually realizing, hey, this seems like it works. Let's, instead of just adopting things that already existed and slightly modifying, let's create something entirely new that's purpose-built for this. And that's where the SD-2, I think, really deserves recognition as the first truly purpose-built anti-personnel cluster weapon. And so you've been to the towns that were greatly harmed in England by, was it October 1940, you've got the attacks on Ipswich and RAF Wadisham. And by that point, the Italians had already dropped landmines. They were called the uh, AR-4 Manzolini bombs or thermos bombs. They look like a beverage thermos. And those were dropped in Egypt against the 4th Indian Division that were serving under the British in September of 1940. So this breaks out so quickly. It spreads so quickly to different theaters. I think once commanders either see a utility in them or they think, well, we've got this thing, let's use them. You know, somebody sent them to us, let's check them out, see how they work. So there's just so many different uses of them so early in the war by different sides. And I was surprised by just how widespread it was so early on. This is almost like a classic unchecked case of weapons proliferation going from one state to another, trying to keep up with each other's military advances, and no one's stopping at any point and thinking, are these weapons particularly moral, ethical, suitable for use in war? Instead, we just need to throw everything we can at the enemy, and if they've used it against us, then we can use it against them. But... Am I right in thinking then that you have incendiary cluster munitions that are designed to start fires across towns and cause 
mayhem and mass amounts of damage. And then you have these separate anti-personnel cluster munitions, by which we mean they are designed to specifically kill people, because they explode with fragments, they're fragmentation bombs, that can kill and maim people within a certain radius. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. That's, that's exactly right. And are these ever used together in what is quite a disturbing and potent mix? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I was greatly surprised to find that in the United States' first attack on the Japanese mainland, we call it the Doolittle Raid, that Jimmy Doolittle, flying a lead aircraft, this lieutenant colonel, dropped a number of 500-pound general purpose bombs and then also dropped four incendiary clusters. They were the AN-M54 clusters. He dropped four of those on Tokyo. So really in the very first American counterattack of the Second World War against Japan, we used incendiary clusters. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that these incendiary clusters, the M54s, were actually given to the United States by the United Kingdom. These were British-designed incendiary clusters that were then shipped in some numbers to the United States for use. And that was before the United States came up with its own indigenously designed incendiary clusters that it used to devastating effect in Japan. By August of 42, the U.S. had actually standardized its own incendiary submunition filled with napalm. It's called the M69. And the U.S. dropped those in the hundreds of thousands on Japan to devastating effect just a few short years later. So hang on, they added napalm to cluster bombs? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> napalm was an American invention. There's a fantastic book, which I really can't recommend highly enough, by Robert Muir called Napalm and American Biography. And I'm very fortunate that Bob is a friend. He's somebody that I've talked with extensively, shared notes with, just like you and I have shared notes. So the M69 was actually each submunition was filled with basically like a cloth sock filled with napalm. And when it hit the ground, there was an expelling charge that blew this sock out one end and also ignited it. It wasn't on fire. It didn't start burning until it hit the ground. And then it basically ejects this slug of napalm that then sticks to what it hits and starts burning. And that is basically how the United States destroyed Japan. 64 of Japan's 67 biggest cities were destroyed by napalm. Kyoto was spared, and the other two were destroyed by nuclear weapons. But really the thing that destroyed Japan, or Japan's largest cities, were napalm-filled cluster bombs. Made even more potent by the fact that the cities are made of paper and wood. Yes, and I found in my research that there was an American Navy lieutenant commander who was an attaché in Japan who, before the war, sent a letter back saying that he felt that Japan was incredibly susceptible to incendiary weapons. And that guy ended up, I think, having some sort of influence on the development of American incendiary cluster munitions. Because certainly they were identified as optimal weapons for Japan for exactly the reason that you cite. The construction materials, wood construction, densely packed dwellings and structures that in the United States actually studied earlier fires in Tokyo based on earthquakes that showed just how easily Tokyo in particular could be destroyed by fire. Wow, there really is a science behind maximizing death, isn't there? Oh, there really is, yeah. I mean, there's taxpayer dollars at work, right? There are people that, this is what they do when they wake up and go to work in the morning until they come home at night, as they're thinking about how can I more effectively achieve the mission objective 
in this case the mission objective being killing people and breaking things. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Well, let's go back to the origins of this bomb, at least in the country that first develops these cluster munitions, Germany, because you mentioned this weapon that you call the SD-2, the butterfly bomb. What is so special about this weapon? Why is it so heavily invested in by the Germans? What makes it so potent and effective? Well, I think there are a few things at play here. One is that the Germans developed at least three fuses, right? There was one that was a impact-fired fuse, so when the submunition hit the ground, it would explode. The second was a time delay that could be set so that some amount of time elapsed after hitting the ground, it would detonate. And the third was an anti-disturbance fuse. So these were specifically meant as booby traps. They would hit the ground and lay there, ready to detonate until somebody disturbed them, or something disturbed them. These three different types of bomblets externally would look basically identical. 
and a mix of them could be packaged in the same dispenser, in the same bomb casing. So you could really wreak havoc on a target down below. If you had some explosions right away, then as people maybe come out of their bunkers or places they'd gone for safety, others start exploding at random intervals while they're back out in the open. And then others would detonate as people walk by and kick them or a truck drove by and just you know rumbled the earth enough or a non-combatant could pick them up. So that particular weapon is remarkable for the multitude of effects that it could have on a given target. And the Germans, the first time they used it against the British was against airfield targets, which makes sense because it doesn't take a whole lot of fragmentation to disable an airplane. And so the wide dispersal area also is useful when you think of an airfield. You know, you've got this large open area. You might want to crater the runway, which would take some time for ground crews to then pour new asphalt or cement, level it off, let it cure so you could get your air station back up and running. So to my understanding, those are the first places the Germans used them against the UK. But I think the Germans found that there was a wide array of targets that could be used. And the other really critical thing that I found here was the degree to which German designers saw them as a way to mitigate the lack of accuracy of regular bombs. We certainly see this in Vietnam with the United States experience across Southeast Asia, that before the advent of laser-guided bombs, which happened starting, I think, in 1973 for the United States and Southeast Asia, I've read reports (laughs) from the U.S. military that talk about the utility of cluster weapons to make up for the lack of accuracy in regular air-delivered bombs. And there are reports further on that said, is as we get more laser-guided bombs, as we get more precision-guided bombs, the need for cluster munitions will be less and less. But in fact, there's just a subset of military leaders who just really like these things. And what I found was they kept moving the goalposts throughout the Cold War to say, no, these still have a place. We still need to keep them in our inventory, even when they had much better bombs or they had weapons that could much more effectively do the mission that would originally be assigned to cluster weapons. So there's an allure to the cluster bomb that sounds like it was very much taking hold of German strategic planners even early on, because it's so interesting to realize that these were used as, well, tactical weapons to really blunt the British air power capacity. If a, if a plane takes off, then you drop these bombs and then they'll lay littered on the runway and then the planes can't land and any planes that are out there, well, they'll explode and damage them. But then well, let's look at these and what they can do and turn them to cities. Because if they can render an airfield impotent, then they can render a city impotent. And that picture you paint, this idea that the bombs will drop and some will explode and kill and maim those who are out there, and then some will just sit and lay in wait for ambulance crews or firefighters or wardens, and then those will wait even longer. And they'll just sit there for days, weeks, months, did the butterfly bombs lay there for years? Have these been has been found after the war? Oh gosh, yeah. Yeah. I think the last person killed in the UK by a German butterfly bomb died in 1954. I want to say a Royal Air Force lieutenant who died from one of these. And then my understanding is I think in 2007 might have been the most recent discovery of one in Malta by a young boy who I've reached out to, but he's never written me back. But Luckily, he escaped harm, but, you know, I know that within the past 20 years, they've been found in Malta. Uh, They're still found in Southeast Asia where they were used. I've looked at the expenditure numbers for the U.S. Air Force during the Vietnam War. 
the data I have is from 65 to 73, and you can see a large number of leftover airdropped munitions from the Second World War and the Korean War stockpiles that got used up in Vietnam. And then you see uh, more modern weapons being used from there. So that's how you actually see the American M83 butterfly bomb, the you know reverse engineered version of the German SD2 turning up in Laos today. These things are still being found. So hang on, that weapon that you talk about, the weapon that causes untold death, destruction and terror, the butterfly bomb, despite its name, it's pretty terrifying, that then gets adopted by the United States. Yeah, absolutely. I think the US doesn't really care where they get good ideas from. They just, if they see a better mousetrap, they'll try and copy it and use it. I don't think there's a lot of pride in ownership sometimes when they see something that works better. They'll want to get their hands on it, reverse engineer it, and see if they can make it work for themselves. Let's move past the Second World War now and into the Cold War era, because these weapons don't disappear, right? If you're saying that the Americans take hold of these and start using them themselves, are they used even more than the Germans did? How proliferately were these used across and during the Vietnam War and in places like Laos? Well, I think to answer that question, we have to really look at the Korean War. The United States started using these M83 submunitions in Korea. I think you've written about Operation Strangle, right? Yes, Operation Strangle, the attempts to stop the supply routes and to strangle them of any supplies to their frontline forces and to put a chokehold around the Korean forces and the Chinese, right? Right, and I don't think it actually worked. I think it was ultimately judged to be a failure, but I did find mentions of American engineer companies having to deal with their own duds. I think held up this one company for like three days as they just couldn't move through an area, they had to blow up these duds before they could progress. So wherever you find them used, you find them harming the people who use them also, or most often. And so one thing that is apparent is that the United States, in the, there was a period in the 50s where the U.S. was looking at two separate issues. One, the concept of limited war, or what they called limited war, the idea of fighting conventional war while you have nuclear weapons. And there was a feeling that some senior generals had that the U.S. had gone so far in the direction of developing nuclear weapons that it had let its conventional arsenal atrophy in terms of sophistication and what could be done with technology at the time, right? The other big thing was important was human wave attacks that U.S. and U.N. forces faced on the Korean Peninsula in that the munitions that they were dropping, whether they be artillery, whether it be airdrop bombs, these cases were generally forged, heated billet of metal, punched into a shape, rolled. So there were no very few welds or seams or anything. When these things exploded, they produced irregularly sized and shaped fragmentation. So you could have some really big pieces, you could have some small pieces, but you did not have this thing breaking up into uniformly sized and shaped pieces, which if you had that, you could more effectively cover you know, a given area around the detonation. So there is this very, very secret program at the U.S. Army's Picatinny Arsenal in New Jersey called COFRAM. You may see it as CORFAM, COFRAM, COFRAG, but it stands for Controlled Fragmentation or Controlled Fragmentation Munitions. And so the idea was the U.S. Army wanted to create this, what they called optimum frag, this pattern that would spread fast-moving, sharp pieces of metal in a more uniform pattern over a reliable distance, right? And so these were actually classified, I believe, at the same level that nuclear weapon designs were. And so the U.S. developed 
a whole new generation of artillery rounds that had what they called the submissiling concept. The idea that the artillery shell would fly a certain distance and then the fuse would function, it would pop off the base plate, out would tumble small little submunitions. In the first generation they developed, actually when they hit the ground, a small charge fired and fired up into the air a small golf ball sized grenade-like munition that then exploded and it had, are you familiar with you know, seeing like World War II movies when somebody throws a hand grenade, it looks like a pineapple. So those don't actually produce regularly sized fragmentations. If you actually were to flip that inside out and put those notches on the inside, the side that actually faces the explosives, the army found you're much more likely to get regularly sized fragments. So the standard hand grenade that NATO has used for 50 something years, the M67, that is a slightly modified version of a, I think it was the M32 grenade. Either way, that hand grenade came out of the COFRAM program. These small things they called ICMs for improved conventional munitions. The first ICM rounds, which had these bounding fragmentation charges, those were internally embossed as well. And so they were incredibly excited about the potential for these weapons, but they were held in reserve specifically for a World War III scenario with the Soviet Union, like fold the gap, you know, Germany repelling columns of Soviet armor, rolling across into Western Europe. And those were actually held back until the Battle of Quezon in Vietnam. And President Lyndon Johnson was incredibly worried about this Marine Corps firebase in a place called Quezon getting overrun completely by the North Vietnamese Army and actually was talking to General Westmoreland, who was leading American force in Vietnam and other generals, about whether or not it might be prudent to use small nuclear weapons around Quezon to defend it. And he was talked out of that, the records show, by generals who said, you know, we actually have this other weapon that we can use. And we think it would be just as effective. You don't really want to start using nuclear weapons in Vietnam. You just don't. We have these other weapons that are secret. We've been holding back on them. And we think we could start sending these out there and using them. That's exactly what happened. So the first ICM rounds fired in combat were fired by a Marine Corps battery shooting in support of the Marines at Quezon. So then the dam broke. And were they effective? <laughs> this lieutenant colonel who was in command of the battery didn't think so. It's a footnote in a Marine Corps history from the year 1968. This guy, unfortunately, is no longer with us. I think he died in 1993, 94. He's, gosh, he's just one of the dozens of people that I wish were still alive that I could interview. But he said what happened is that a one-star general and a warrant officer flew to Quezon with a pallet of these rounds. There were 105-millimeter howitzer rounds, ICM rounds, and with hand-drawn firing tables for how they would perform in flight and how to train and elevate the howitzers to fire them. And he was ordered to use them. So it was something like, I fired a couple rounds, doubted their effectiveness. So he just went back to firing regular high-explosive projectiles and just lied and told the chain of command, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, work I'm using these new things. Like, he knew that's what they wanted to hear, but he realized they didn't, they just didn't work that great. And so he went back to regular high-explosives. So the disconnect, the delta between reality and public relations or uh, mythos around these weapons, it continues today. But it was an incredibly illuminating example of where it may have started, or at least in the more modern era. So these cluster bombs must have been used in their thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, especially if you're saying that the Americans were aiming to use up their Second World War munitions dumps worth of cluster bombs dropped all over Vietnam. Are these still being found in Vietnam today? Is there still a cleanup operation going on there? Oh, gosh. Yeah, <laughs> there's this 
I mean, it could take hundreds of years to rid Southeast Asia of American munitions left over from the war. I don't know exactly how many of the M83 butterfly bombs are still being found, but I've found fairly recent photos taken in the past 10 years of these things turning up. And I think those in particular were found in Laos. And one thing I think that helps understand the American use of cluster weapons, at least air-delivered cluster weapons in Vietnam, is just one word, desperation. The United States military was desperate to shut down the flow of supplies from the north into South Vietnam, largely through Laos. And you had areas where the supply lines, the trails were covered by heavy jungle, so they could release 500-pound, 1,000-pound, 2,000-pound bombs, right, and not know if they were hitting the right place. So in a lot of the instances, cluster munitions, which by then had really grown up in America into something well-established, many, many different makes and models, were being used in staggering numbers over Laos to interdict the supply lines. So that, I think, is part of the reason why the contamination problem of unexploded submunitions is so profound in that in that country. The thing is, John, we get that war is pain, war is blood, war is suffering, war is about destroying your enemy by any means you can, especially if you're in a desperate attempt like the Americans were in Vietnam or in total wars during the Second World War. But something puzzles me about the cluster bomb. Is it not in some ways a really counterproductive weapon? Because that idea that it lingers for that bit longer, even years longer, how are you meant to move your troops forward? And how are you meant to rebuild a country after a war has ended? If the aim of war is peace, how can these weapons allow for any sort of peace or post-war reconstruction? So that entire concept that you just outlined has a opposite version, which is simply the brute utility of the moment. What do I need to destroy the enemy right here, right now, and then figure out everything else later? I think that what you espouse is, is a more clear-headed and inclusive idea, concept of what victory could mean, what peace could mean, allowing a country to return to industry, allow people to walk the earth in safety. But those considerations, talking to a lot of current and former military planners, are not on the table when they're using these weapons. They simply see them as, this is the best thing to use right here, right now, so that's exactly what I'm going to do. And sort of consequences may be damned. I can tell you that in the research I did, the research I've been doing, place where I found just an absolute mind-bogglingly, seemingly crazy disconnect was in the planning for Operation Desert Storm, the Gulf War, the Persian Gulf War, whatever you want to call it, the kicked off in January 91, U.S.-led forces, you know, expelling Iraqi forces from Kuwait. I was in middle school, I think, during Desert Storm, and you know, I heard over and over again that the U.S. has learned the lessons of Vietnam. The four-star generals leading U.S. forces were lieutenants and majors in Vietnam, and they learned those lessons. Well, it was well known during the Vietnam War about the fratricide hazards that American cluster weapons posed, but somehow that didn't translate into caution when using cluster weapons in Desert Storm, which were used on just an absolute staggering scale. I can pull up the numbers here. I've got essentially 37 days of combat in Desert Storm. So the U.S. used 24.5 million submunitions during Desert Storm in 37 days, which comes out to about 660,000 per day. And if you assume a 20% dud rate, 
that means that there were nearly 5 million duds likely there in the desert in the aftermath of the war that are still being picked up. I mean, I think the initial estimate was that it was going to take 10 years and a billion dollars to clean up Kuwait from unexploded munitions. And it's now 2020 and no one's talking about when the end of unexploded ordnance contamination is going to be solved in Kuwait. And I can say too, the other staggering thing was looking at just how many Americans were killed by their own country's dud bomblets. Other than aircraft crashes and vehicle crashes, it is right up there in terms of of leading causes of death for American forces in 1991. And these weapons, have they been eradicated from warfare now? Well, if you don't sign the treaty, which is what the United States has done, what Russia, Iran, North Korea, it sort of puts the United States in the club of countries that you don't otherwise want to be in. And we were seeing cluster weapons used as recently as the past couple of weeks as Armenia and Azerbaijan are fighting. There's evidence of rocket artillery delivered submunitions being used, you know, photos of duds, certainly compelling evidence on video. So these are, they're still being used by countries that are not signatory to the treaty. So a hundred some countries have signed the treaty, but there are still non-signatory nations that are using them this month. John, thank you so much, because weapons are just a useful way, a lens through which we can explore this history of not only the world wars, of where these munitions come from, but also track how war changes throughout history and see some of the problems which perhaps we think we've solved with legal agreements that say you can't use these weapons of war. Well, actually, they're being bent and twisted, and these same problems, these same weapons, are still being used in wars around the world today. Where can our listeners read more, hear more about your work? Well, I'd love it if they'd subscribe to the New York Times. <laughs> it helps produce the kind of journalism that follows these topics. So I work for the Times. I work out of the Washington, D.C. Bureau. Go to nytimes.com. They can search for my name. They'll find plenty of cluster mission-related reporting there. Most recently was reporting for a part of the Times magazine called At War, and I did a number of stories um, right after I started at the paper in 2017 as the now outgoing administration was changing the rules on that were set by early administrations and actually opening the door to using older types of unreliable cluster weapons. So I asked tough questions at the Pentagon, wrote stories. They certainly did not want to really talk to me about this. I kind of kept at it for about a year, year and a half until I finally got to pose a question to the I guess at the time he was the deputy secretary of defense and he didn't really have any good answers as to why they were changing the policy. But these are issues that are going to be ongoing in the future, unfortunately. And I think that there are a number of countries, the United States included, that are looking to create new generations of cluster weapons that are more reliable, that fail less often, that if they do fail, produce duds that are less hazardous. But the fact of the matter is that anything any piece of technology will fail at a certain point. And with cluster munitions in the past, they've been made incredibly cheaply, as inexpensive as could be. And that goes for every single part, the container, the fuse, the submunitions themselves, the fuses inside the bomblets. So the having say a 20% dud rate was considered acceptable. The United States government likes to say it's less than five, but bomb techs and D miners know that's a, just a complete fallacy. Under the best circumstances, if you look at where these things have been tested, it's generally in the desert in America, like in uh, New Mexico, where you have very hard 
impact surfaces, hard pan desert, free of vegetation, that is an optimum area for these things to function properly. But experience has shown and testing has shown that over a wide array of environments, whether it be mud, snow, you know, slope terrain, any sort of vegetation, it'll cause these things to fail at much higher rates. So who knows what the next administration is going to do. I don't know if the United States is going to sign the treaty. Uh, I think a lot of people are hopeful for that. And no matter what, I'll be there to report on what happens. John, your knowledge is remarkable. Your work is admirable. And I can't wait to have you back on the World Wars again soon. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'd love to come back. Great. Thanks. All right. Thanks, man. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.